We're going to read out of 2 Kings chapter 6. Starting in verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And the Syrians came down against him. Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. This is the word of the Lord. You be seated. So as we move into chapter 7 of Daniel and the second half, really, of this book, the, as Daniel said earlier, that the style changes. The tone of the book changes. So it's important, and I think it's, it's good to take a pause for a minute. We're going to stop and we're going to reflect on what exactly is happening. Up until this point, the book has been mostly narrative. It's been stories that you're very familiar with, stories that you've heard since you were a kid, that we've taught our kids, that I've kind of jokingly talked about the flannel graphs, the different kids' stories. Very familiar. But after six, the rest of the book takes a deep dive into a series of visions and dreams that Daniel has. Kind of goes quickly into a dive. Let's read Daniel 7 here real quick, just so you can get kind of a glimpse of what's happening. How many of you guys are reading along as we're going through Daniel? Good, some of you. I encourage you to do that. We're going to be in Daniel 7 for the next several weeks, probably, three or four weeks. Uh, next week, we actually have a guest speaker. Um, but, yeah, we'll be in Daniel 7 for a while. Let's read this real quick, at least the first half or so, so you can kind of get the feel of what we're about to move into, the difference between this and where we've been. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so first off, time goes backwards. Belshazzar was a couple kings ago. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and a vision of his head as he lay in bed. That he wrote down, then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of the heavens were stirred up, stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion that had eagle's wings. And then I looked, and its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like a bear. And it was raised up on one side. 
and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, and four wings, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, the horn in the horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Verse 9, and as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothes was like white as snow, was white as snow. His hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And steam of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousands, thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the book was opened. I looked and then, because of the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking, and I looked and the beast was killed and his body was destroyed and given over to the burning with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night vision and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom uh, one that shall not be destroyed. And it goes on. The rest of the book is, is in that flavor this particular chapter, Daniel 7, that we're going to spend a few weeks in, is one of the most important Old Testament passages that you can wrap your head around in the way the New Testament relates to the person and work of Jesus. It's quoted 57 times in the New Testament. It's the, this is where we get the language of Jesus when he calls himself the Son of Man. It's all pointing back to this chapter. But the reality is, most people, when they're reading the book of Daniel, they read what I just read and they stop there. It gets a little bit difficult to keep going. You kind of gloss over. It's much easier to read that first section of stories and narratives and familiar tales of, of lion's dens and all of that. But when you get to this point, it gets a little bit trickier. Anybody else feel that? The point of this study, the point of this sermon series is not just to know the stories. 
Ultimately, we believe that they're here in our Bible for a reason. That the Lord gave them to us for a reason. Why are they here? How does this help us live as faithful exiles? How does this help us live? Why did Daniel write these down? That's our prayer. That's what we're trying to get at here. But before we can get there, I think we first have to set the stage as to how are we supposed to read and understand this type of vision and dream? How are we supposed to understand this type of scripture? It's not necessarily, like I said, as straightforward as narrative or the letters. The letters are really easy. It's a lot of like, do this, don't do that, I'll come to you soon. Even poetry, I think we, we have at least a concept of how to read the poems, the psalms and stuff. Like, yeah, this imagery, it's poetic language. But when we come to this section and in the book of Revelation, and there's, there's a couple other sections like it, we have a little bit of a hard time. These extended scenes of visions and dreams, fantastic imagery of beasts and chaotic oceans and horns that have eyes. If we're honest, it's a little bit difficult. Anybody else? Am I the only one? Okay, good. Truth be told, it's, it's difficult even for the professionals. The, the Bible scholars don't agree on this stuff. You could pick up 10 commentaries on the book of Revelation or the second half of Daniel. Almost all of them will disagree. It's very subjective. In biblical studies, what we're talking about is apocalyptic literature. Now, I'm sure when I say apocalyptic, all sorts of different images run through your head. In our culture, the word apocalyptic has taken on a lot of baggage. How many of you guys, when I said that, thought of zombies? Just being honest here. Zombie apocalypse or an apocalyptic fire. Like, we've, we've experienced some of those here, right? Cambridge Dictionary, which is not always the best place to go for a definition when you're reading your Bible, but this is how it defines apocalyptic. It says, apocalyptic is the showing or describing of the total destruction and end of the world or extremely bad future events. For the most part, I think that's how our culture understands the word apocalyptic. If you look at the common uses of the word, that's how it's used. The end of the world, destruction of the world as we know it. Now I have the song stuck in the back of my head. Um, the interesting thing is that that is not at all how that word is used in the Bible. It's not at all how that word is used. Uh, and its origins have really nothing to do with the destruction of the earth or extremely bad future events. Apocalyptic, it's really, it's a Greek word that we've transliterated into English. We've taken a Greek word 
and we've spelt it out into English, and we say it and use it as an English word. But it's a Greek word. It has its origins in the Greek, and it means in the Bible, it's almost always translated as to reveal or an unveiling or to make fully known. In fact, this is where we get the name for the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation. It happens to be the same sort of literature that we're talking about for the second half of Daniel. The introduction to the book of Revelation, let's look at this. Revelation 1, 1 through 3, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation, that's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him and showed to his servants the things which must soon take place. Okay, so God gave John an apocalypse of things that will soon take place. That's what that says there. He made known. He apocalypsed. He unveiled a thing by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. I had to include verse 3 here because this is an important one. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Do you guys know Revelation's the only book you get blessed just by reading it? <laughs> just by reading it. Most of us don't spend our time there, but I encourage you. It's good. Read it. Let's look at a couple other examples of the way this Greek word is used in the Bible. It's okay. It's going to be a little bit, I told Naomi earlier, it's going to be a little bit of like a, a lesson tonight, not as much a sermon. Is that okay? Yeah? Okay. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers... When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, an apocalypse, a tongue, or an interpretation. Does that mean the total destruction of the earth? Probably not. Let all things be done for building up. Let's look at another one, Ephesians 1:17. This is one of my favorite prayers of Paul. When I don't know what to pray, this is where I go. Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of apocalypse in the knowledge of him. Do you think that means total destruction of the earth or terrible things in the future? No. I pray that the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having your eyes, the eyes of your heart enlightened. There's a word picture for you of what it means to have an apocalypse. That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what are the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of great might? Paul's praying for an apocalypse. 
He's praying that, he, that the Lord would give the Ephesian church an apocalypse. That he would open the eyes of their heart. So where in the world did we end up getting, taking this word that means unveiling or revealing, and now in our common use, it means the total destruction of the world or extremely bad future events? I think probably, because I think even some of the dictionaries say as seen in the book of Revelation in the Bible, I think probably out of a popular current way of reading John's Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, that's where we get that use of the word. For many people, Daniel 7 through 12, the book of Revelation is foretelling in detail the scenarios, the situations of the total and complete destruction, the end of mankind and human, uh, the order of how we see things, at least earth as we know it. And I'd say that's not entirely untrue. The book of Revelation is telling like incredibly in the second half of Daniel here, there's, there's some fantastic stories. Stuff that is like beasts and mega beasts and horns. This, some of this stuff is scary when you actually read it. Beasts, lake of fire, birds that are feasting on the flesh of God's enemies. That's when you read Revelation, that's all in there. For many, the process of reading these types of scripture, it, it, you have to craft timelines and charts to deal with it. I think it's very important, though, that we take time to understand how apocalyptic scripture actually works. Why do we have it? Why is it here? And how do we approach it? It's also, and I think it's really important, to understand how biblical prophecy works. For many, I think typically we think of prophecy as like almost fortune telling. Like there's a one-to-one -one example or simple prediction of the future. And that becomes really problematic when you start looking at some of these Old Testament prophecies. Because sometimes there's multiple fulfillments of these prophecies. Sometimes they don't all or in entirety become fulfilled. The best way I know how to understand biblical prophecy is this method called telescoping. And here's how it works. I'm, I had to, we'll show some pictures here. You know, I couldn't let Andrew have all the fun with his outdoor pictures. So I have some show and tell. Here's how this works. When you look through a telescope, or you look through a camera of any sort, and you look at a scenery. So let's put up that, this tunnel view. You see it. Let's see if I can. I'm going to try something new here. How many of you guys have been there? Seen this? This is Yosemite. If you have not been, how dare you? You should go. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you should go, though. Um, this is the tunnel view in Yosemite. This photo I took last year. And a million people or more have taken this exact same photo. Um, 
Here's what I want to point out, and I want to try to do this and see if this works. This right there, oh, can you see that? Yeah. That's El Capitan. It's a big rock. It's like just straight up vertical rock if you stand underneath it. Let's see if I can. Right back there, pointing to it in the bottom, that's a place called Cloud's Rest. And you've got Half Dome. This is Cathedral Rock. Glacier Point's back there. All these different places. But when you look at it from this view, they all look pretty close. They all look in one plane of view. And actually, it's interesting because Half Dome back here actually looks higher than Cloud's Rest. And it looks smaller than El Cap. Slightly deceptive. Cloud's Rest is actually taller, it's higher. I've hiked, Naomi and I have hiked Cloud's Rest and Half Dome. Interestingly enough, if you look at this satellite map, that tunnel view is here. Glacier Point, we talked about there. Half Dome's here, Cloud's Rest here, El Cap there. They're not close at all. They're miles away. It takes days sometimes to hike between these. The reality is when we look, and this is what, this is an old, old drawing I found on the web that I think perfectly explains this. When we look at Old Testament prophecies, we see this straight line. And there's fulfillments of things that happen. But they only maybe saw this part. Or maybe only that part was fulfilled. And there's still this part that's coming. And here we are in the valley of the church. We're somewhere in between. And we, when we read these Old Testament prophecies, we're both looking backwards and forwards. Which can get a little bit confusing, yeah? Yeah? Sometimes, and so what happens, one of the clearest examples of the way this works, at least the way I was thinking, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, we can, I mean, this can stay up there, it's fine, but isn't that an interesting drawing? Um, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This prophecy has been fulfilled. The thing is, Jesus only reads part of that prophecy. He reads the bits about blind seeing and captives and prisoners getting set free. But he misses and he doesn't read the part about judgment and vengeance that's coming. He doesn't read that section. The reason is, I think, this concept of telescoping. The judgment will indeed happen. It's going to be fulfilled. But what we're seeing right now is, is in the foreground, not in the background, I guess is how that would be. Does that make sense? Does that just make it more muddy for you, or does that help? 
So as we, here, we'll put Yosemite back up there. As we move into the second half of Daniel, it's important that we get this because the commentaries, like I said, are full of disagreements. They can't agree on what's going on here. Some of the commentaries will say the four kingdoms are Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. Others have a whole different list of who those empires are. Possibly they're not even past empires. Those are only future empires. It's possible, and this is what the point here with the telescoping, it's possible that there's multiple dimensions of that that are all true. Rome was definitely a beast, a grotesque beast, like we read in Daniel. But we know from Revelation there's coming another beast, an antichrist spirit. My goal today, hopefully, is to help paint a different picture of why we have these stories. What's the point? Is that helpful? These are so quiet. Before we get too far into, uh, into chapter 7, I want to look at an example, this passage that we read tonight, as uh, an example of an apocalypse, an example of an unveiling. Like I said, it's, it's a pulling back of the curtain a revealing of what God is doing behind the scenes. It's sort of a like Wizard of Oz, the end when Toto goes and pulls back. I guess, am I ruining the movie for everybody? The reality is though, I think for many of us, we have so rationalized our faith, it's so caught up in our head, that we don't even think about what's going on behind the scenes. We don't think about the fact that there's angels and principalities and powers and spiritual beings and things happening that we don't see in the foreground. For the biblical worldview, for a Christian worldview, uh, it's all about a commingling of the natural and supernatural. That's just how it is. That's, you can't get too far through any passage in the scripture without seeing that commingling happening. There's things happening behind the scenes. When we, I think we take these terms and we, we because of, I think, just modern world, we want a empirical, scientific way of breaking things down. And so we've taken and Here's the natural things that we can touch and see and smell and sense. And anything else that doesn't fit within that box, it's for the realm of fairy tales. But the Bible tells a different story. The Bible is about those things, the supernatural, even mystic things that are real, maybe even more real than what you can touch, feel, and see. The Bible is ultimately a story of God's plan to bring together 
the spiritual and the physical into one. That's where this whole thing is going, the restoration of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. So passages like we read, like we read tonight in the Second Kings is an amazing story from the Old Testament. And I think it clearly shows what the biblical idea of apocalypse is. Some background on this story. Second Kings chapter 6, the first part of this story actually opens up with an interesting little story of the, uh, an axe head floating. Again, mystical things. Read your Bibles. It's, it's encouraging. But starting in verse 8, we read this story about the king of Syria who was making war against Israel. And so he has this war council, a meeting of his leaders, and they discuss strategy, and they make a plan to go and, and fight this battle against Israel. And apparently, as he was doing that, the Lord was speaking to his prophet Elisha and was telling him exactly the plans that the king of Syria was going to do before he did them. And Elisha took and he shared that information with the king of Israel. So the king of Israel knew ahead of time what the king of Syria was going to do. And so they positioned their forces to meet the king of Syria. King of Syria assumes he has a spy in the camp. This is all here. You can read it. I'm just paraphrasing it. The servants point their fingers at Elisha. No, 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 there's no spy here. There's no spy, but there is this guy, this prophet Elisha, who is telling the king the things that you talk about in your bedroom, your secret conversations. He knows what you're talking about somehow. Yahweh is telling him. It's like he's listening to your private conversations. Do you think king of Syria is pretty happy about that? No. So he sends a great army to try to capture the prophet Elisha. So here you have the scene that sets the scene for the story that we read. This great army is coming to capture this prophet. The drama of this story is amazing. Remember the, the servant of Elisha, he says, what should we do? They're not soldiers. These aren't trained armies. This is, this is a band of prophets, a school of the prophets. These are Bible students of the day. They're not soldiers. They have no real way of defending themselves against this great Syrian army that's coming to try to kill the prophet. Needless to say, there's an army surrounding them, and the servant of Elisha is a little bit on edge. He's kind of scared, right? Being the servant of Elisha is probably a tough thing. I mean, this, this the prophet's a little bit. He does some crazy things. So Elisha says this. He says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
I can picture the servant being like, it's just us, young prophets. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, dude. What do you mean, Elijah? There's no one with us. We're just prophets. We're not an army. What are you expecting me to do? And then here it happens. Here's the apocalypse. Verse 17, Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What happens in this story is a great example of a biblical apocalypse. It's a pulling back of the curtain. The servant had no idea that behind the scenes, God was doing something. He wasn't about to let the king of Syria take out the prophet. There's chariots of fire all around there to protect him. So the curtain is pulled back, and we see behind the scenes as to what God is doing. This sort of thing happens all over through the scripture. This isn't isolated to here. If you read with eyes to see it, you'll see these moments where God shows up. Something happens, and you get a glimpse into what God is doing behind the scenes. Think of the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. A couple of Jesus' disciples go with him, and they get this. All of a sudden, Jesus is there, and he's hanging out with Moses and Elijah, having a conversation. The voice of the Father speaks. These sort of things happen all through the scriptures. The Lord would speak with dreams and visions. In the New Testament, this is not an abnormal thing. Church history is full of these stories as well. We could tell lots of stories. The second half of Daniel, we get a concentrated element of these stories, these dreams. The first half, we had dreams, but it was Daniel interpreting dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. And now in chapter 7, we begin to get into Daniel's dreams, and angels are interpreting them for him. If you've read them before, like I said, if you've read Revelation, you know that these are full, vivid pictures. These are like, they'll capture your imagination, fantastic creatures and mystical situations. And we have to ask ourselves, we have to wrestle with, why all the imagery? Why the dreams? If you're like me, why not just a spreadsheet, <laughs> some charts, something simple and straightforward? I want a timeline. And the Lord gives us dreams and visions, pictures. I think the reason is that we're not supposed to read it like a timeline or a textbook necessarily. These images are supposed to evoke emotions. They're supposed to evoke a level of response that's not just in your intellect. 
Think about this real, real quick with me. If, when, when we think of the bald eagle, we think of the bald eagle, America. <laughs> it evokes some emotions about this nation that we live in. You think donkey and elephant. There's emotions around that, yeah? Red and blue. It's just, it could be just a color. These are symbols. Think of the, during the revolution, the snake chopped in pieces. I'm just picking some American symbols here. But they evoke emotions in response, these symbols, these pictures, these icons. It's the same thing in the scriptures. They point back to creation, and they point forward to the restoration of all things. They paint with uh, color what it's going to look like. They confront and they deal with and they conflict even with the popular images of the day. They're in conversation with what's happening. That's why if you read the commentators, as an example, when you look at the beast in Daniel 7, the first one, people often say it has to be Babylon. Because at the gates of Babylon, you can see it in some of the museums, there's this... this, um, Gosh, a lion with wings on it. it. It was there, like what we have as the, uh, the eagle, they had a lion with wings on it. It was their symbol. So these pictures in apocalyptic literature, they are in communication and conversation with the popular images that confront our, our imagery today. The Lord uses them to speak to us. He invites us into a conversation with them. All of Scripture is a story and a narrative and a painting by the Holy Spirit of an invitation to invite us to a deeper conversation. It's an invitation to a deeper relationship and an understanding of who God is and what he's done and what he is going to do. And then who the heck am I in light of all of that? That's what the scripture is. Who is God? What has he done? What is he going to do? And what am I supposed to do in light of all of that? And so when we read these pictures, these fantastic images, that's what it's there. It's an invitation to relationship, to have a dialogue with the Holy Spirit. What is going on? It's supposed to perplex you. That's why Jesus would say over and over things like, he who has eyes to see, let him see. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Take a second. Open the eyes of my heart. Let me see what you're doing, God. So as we look at the apocalypse of Daniel, the second half of Daniel, remember where we are so far in the story. They're still in exile. They have been subject to multiple kings. They have been removed from their homeland. They're awaiting their soon coming return to their land. They're awaiting the ultimate coming of Messiah. But in the meantime... Things are not going the way they would like. They're still in Babylon. They're under a third or fourth king at this point, but they're still in Babylon. 
This is very similar to John's apocalypse. This is, the context is similar to the book of Revelation. Depending on where you date the book of Revelation, it either happens in A.D. like 68, right before the fall of Jerusalem, or in A.D. 95. I favor the later dating. Either way, the book of Revelation happens in the context of great persecution. The church is being scattered. John, the author, has been, uh, folklore says, he was tarred and feathered and exiled to the island of Patmos to die alone as he writes that book. Persecution is breaking out. Christians are being killed in mass. And John was likely just waiting to die on this island. And that's the context that the Lord busts open the curtains and shows him behind the scenes, God's not done yet. He's still on the throne. He's unmoved. Same thing happens in Daniel. They're in exile and the seams come back. You get a picture. There's one, like the Ancient of Days, who is enthroned. Yeah, there's these beasts, there's these creatures, but the Ancient of Days, he's enthroned. And oh yeah, there's one like a son of man riding the clouds and he's going to receive all dominion and power and authority. So when God's people are going through times of testing and trial and exile, they need to see behind the scenes. That's why we have this in the book of Daniel. God is still enthroned. Ezekiel Another picture, this is actually at the beginning of Israel's exile. Ezekiel is a contemporary of, of Daniel. He was a priest. And on his 30th birthday, the year that he would have been installed as a priest in the temple, instead of doing what he had trained his entire life to do, he finds himself at a slave canal outside of the city of Babylon. He finds himself trying to figure out what is going on. And the Lord comes and gives him an apocalypse. And what does he see? He sees God's throne room, God's throne. But it's on wheels and it's moving. Wait a second, I thought God was back in Jerusalem. I thought I trained my entire life to serve in the temple. The Lord gives him an apocalypse and a view behind the scenes. No, God's not bound to the temple. He's on wheels. He's, he's wherever you need to be. He's there. He's with you in Babylon. So as we're going to see in the second part of Daniel, he is the only sovereign God. He's the ruler of everything. He's enthroned. He knows the beginning from the end. He's not caught off guard by beasts and beastly kingdoms. He's not shocked or surprised. Bad kings don't throw him off his game. He's fully aware of bad politics. He has a plan. And one day... We will see one like a son of man coming on the clouds. 
taking his seat next to the Ancient of Days. The point of these visions, the point of the dreams, the point of this apocalyptic literature for them and for us is hope. This should not terrify us as we read these stories. It should spark hope inside of us. Yes, there's definitely a prophetic nature to all of this. There's weird things that could happen. But if we get too focused on how that's going to happen and the timelines, and some people love that stuff, more power to you. I think we miss the point. Our God reigns. He's enthroned. He knows the beginning from the end. He's unmoved by anything that those on earth can do. That's Psalm 2. The Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs at the kings of the earth that hold him. We can trust our God. Even when things get hard and things get uncomfortable, when we feel like everything's coming against us, we can trust that he knows what he's doing. No matter what's going on in your life or where you find yourself, The good news is that there is one like a son of man, or as Revelation says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the slain lamb. He has defeated hell, death, hell, and the grave. He's conquered, and right now he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. Right now he's working through you and I as his church, to do what Andrew was talking about, to create communities of intentional discipleship, to make more people disciples of Jesus. He's still on a mission to bring more into the household of God. And the good news is he will come again. That's good news. This this should give us hope. He will come again to finish what he started. He will restore the heavens and the earth. He will bring them together with a new heavens, a new earth. He will fix all that's broken. And right now, this week, you and I, our job is to be faithful where he's planted us. We started this study in Daniel with looking at the commission to plant gardens, raise families, pray for the city that the Lord has planted us in. That's what the Lord told the exiles to do in Babylon. Plant gardens, raise families, pray for the good of the city. Whether you agree with what's happening there or not, we are here as missionaries, as as Paul says, as ambassadors of the kingdom. We have another master, another king. Amen? Worship team, come back up, pray. Father, I thank you. That you are so kind to speak and to reveal what you're doing behind the scenes. You don't have to, but you want to invite us into that conversation. So as we begin this study through the second half 
of Daniel. God, I pray, like Elisha prayed, that you would open our eyes that we would see. That as Jesus said over and over, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you are doing. That as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. Show us what you're doing. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen.